This message was recorded at a Christ Central Leaders Day in Bolton. You can find out more about Christ Central by visiting our website, ChristCentralChurches.org. We're going to uh, share uh, this uh, session uh, this afternoon, me and my lovely wife Sue. We've been married nearly 45 years. Uh, So, as you know, in front of every great woman as a good man, or should that be the other way around? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, uh, Sue has uh, been a wonderful, wonderful wife to me in, in ministry, and uh, so I felt that... And in life, generally. That's right. <laughs> and uh, so I thought that it would be good if we could share this session together, which I put under the general heading of Seasons of Ministry, Actually, we've, I'm copying this idea a bit from Greg and Ruth Haslam because we had a, a leaders' retreat for Alsphere Commission uh, uh, earlier in the year, and Greg and Ruth Haslam came and they kind of did a double act and uh, sort of shared their story. Uh, we're going to do it a bit more briefly than they are, but then you know I'm not Greg Haslam, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> uh, and uh, we, so we're going to go backwards and forwards a bit. We, if if it uh, if it runs on, I'll prune it, make sure you're not late. Uh, <laughs> and if, it's, uh, if, it, if it runs shorter, you can ask us some questions or simply go home. Uh, okay. Probably the latter, yeah. Okay, so uh, I, I'm going to begin by handing straight over to Sue because what we're going to do is start with a bit of prehistory, really, and uh, then kind of catch you up to date. We want to tell our story a bit, but also try and impart perhaps a few things we've learned and how, in fact... Really, there are seasons to ministry. Um, we've uh, uh, sort of been through decades of, of ministry together, so there are things that you learn. You do see changes taking, taking place, so we'll be sharing uh, some of that. So I'll hand straight over to Sue to begin with. I actually, um, I actually found it quite hard thinking back over the whole of my life, because I don't do that. I mean... You cope with the present, don't you, and trust God for the future. So it's not something I do, really. And I I found it a bit disconcerting, partly because I've been around for such a very, very long time. Um, But when I thought about it, and John, being John, had done these headings. He said, I'll do this bit, you do that bit, and all the way down. So I saw these headings, and I, I did find it a rather odd thing, just to think about our life. But as I thought about it... um, The conclusion I came to, which really sums it all up, so I could just as well sit down in a way, was that God is faithful and God is true. Um, And I I just wanted to read some verses, because one of us has got to give some spiritual content. Um, (laughs) 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 This is kind of... uh, I give thanks to my God always for you. This is 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians who, as we know, were an interesting bunch. Uh, That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, hallelujah, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful. Um, 
I met John because we both grew up in the same Baptist church in North London. North Finchley Baptist Church long ago pulled down, but there we are. Um, it, was, it served its purpose in that we met, um, <laughs> amongst other things. And um, I came from a lovely but non-Christian background, and John came from a Christian background. And um, I joined the guides because that's what my best friend asked me to. This is the small things, Lord, you know, small things, small choices, huge impact. Um, and then this same friend, when I was 13, was baptized, and I'd never heard of believer's baptism. I'd certainly never attended one, and I went into that church, when I think about the grace of God now, it could make me cry. I went into that church with a generalized belief in God. Church was boring. I mean, it was very boring at North Finchley Baptist Church. And I would go under sufferance once a month to church parade because that's what you had to do if you were a scout or a guide in that church. Um, but I went to that friend's baptism with a generalized knowledge that God is. And I knew some Bible stories because in my day we were taught them at school. And I came out from a not particularly evangelistic message. We didn't get them at that church. But I knew that God was God, but he was also personal, and that he had a claim on my life, and that he had a right to my life forever. And I think I was regenerate in in that moment, in that meeting. And life was never the same again. Um, I joined a baptismal class, which I was terrified to open my mouth at, because I was very shy and very ignorant, I can't remember anything about it at all. Uh, There were nine of us. One of them was John at the same class. And he knew more than me because he came from a Christian family, but also because he was fortunate enough to go to a Crusader Bible class. And how very incorrect that name is now. But anyway, we don't talk about the (laughs) Crusaders. But anyway, he went to a Crusaders Bible class, and so he was actually taught the gospel at the Crusader Bible class. But I think I knew enough that I was, <laughs> I was saved, and I was baptized with John and seven others many, many, many years ago. And um, we, we came out of this traditional Baptist background. It was all that I knew. It wasn't exciting. I knew nothing about the baptism in the Spirit. Nobody did, I think. We didn't, therefore, we didn't know about the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, Because it wasn't an evangelical church, we had lots of sermons about being kind to our neighbors. And I'm sure there was one at one point about not vandalizing telephone booths. It's stuck in my my mind as being memorable. Perhaps Perhaps it was a youth service. But anyway, I don't know. But we had this youth group, which was like a church within a church. And, you know, we believed God in that youth group. And we had prayer meetings, which I think was more than the main church did with the older people in it. And we believed that God heard and that he would answer, and he did. And so really, in spite of my circumstances, but because possibly of this youth group, I grew as a Christian, and um, I used to read my Bible every evening uh, at that stage, and I would sit with my Bible in one hand and my Bible reading notes in the other, and gradually began to grow as a Christian. I say John was always streets ahead of me because he'd been better taught, uh, a man of faith, and... uh, our paths parted as they, as they do. He went off into the Merchant Navy. I got some training and went to work up in London. Um, but eventually we got married. <laughs> there you go. Interesting thing, sign of the times. He, we, it, was a, it, was a big, it was a big youth group. Most of us married each other in a quite... Uh, <laughs> it, was, I mean, it was awful. Really. Everybody, I suppose everybody was related, a bit like New Frontiers, really. But anyway... Um, <laughs> There were loads of marriages within that youth group 
and this is going back 40 plus years and they've all stuck which I think just was a sign of the times in a way we all God was very kind to us um, is that me for that bit? Fine. That's enough, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I should I say that I actually left school. I went into the merchant navy and I joined uh, BP oil tankers, which had the largest merchant fleet in the country at that time. And uh, uh, I was a Christian and. Uh, I, I kind of, I suppose, drifted into the Merchant Navy thinking you know, it would be, be quite exciting, uh, etc. But uh, while, while I was on a particular sh- oil tanker one night coming out of Bombay, uh, we had empty oil tanks because we discharged the oil in Bombay, been to the Persian Gulf, we're coming out uh, to go back to the Persian Gulf to reload. And we always went through a process called tank cleaning uh, where we used to put... Uh, hoses with uh, brass nozzles on them uh, down into the uh, tanks. They used to spin around, send out high jets of water, uh, brass so as not to cause cause a spark. But uh, I was asleep in my bunk uh, uh, on board one night and there was uh, a spark, obviously, was created and there was this terrific explosion. And the side of the ship blew out and the ship began to turn over. Uh, I always remember, I, I sort of recall this recently, the funny things you do in a crisis, I was kind of thrown out of my bunk and I was thinking, well, I'll have to take to the lifeboat, I need my best shoes, I need my best shoes. So there I am looking for my best shoes as the ship's turning over. And uh, uh, so I got out on deck, but uh, uh, because we were an oil tanker, there were lots of separate tanks. It, it happened, and Captain knew what he was doing, he flooded certain of the undamaged tanks and that kind of righted the ship. Uh, long story, so we got back into Bombay, but we, we did eventually, and the scientists came out from London to kind of look at the ship, and they, they thought, hmm, and they said, this is very strange, because they said uh, the, the uh, thinner plating on the ship uh, is, uh, is, is the plating that's actually along the deck, and the thicker plating is down the side of the ship. So actually, the explosion should have gone up through the deck, because uh, that's the thinner plating, but actually it went out through the side of the ship, which was a thicker plating. If it had gone up through the thinner plating, I wouldn't be here now, because uh, it was, I mean, it was, it, it was a massive explosion. I mean, it took out about uh, half the ship's length, uh, so it was a massive explosion. And that kind of made me think about God's call on my life, really. And so, uh, <laughs> I, I, I kind of, uh, you, you, you obviously operate within the context you're in, um, so at that time I was in a Baptist church, so it kind of worked out in terms of me believing that God had called me to be a pastor and that the route I should go was actually through um, the Baptist church route because that's uh, what I knew. So uh, contracting a, a, a few things, uh, I actually uh, ended up a, a little while later in Spurgeon's Baptist College in London and I was there for uh, four years. Uh, we took a London University degree at that time. The college was quite small. Uh, it would have about 80, 85, I think, full-time students. There were no part-time students at that time. Now it's completely different. They have hardly any full-time students, and most of the courses are part-time. But it only trained Baptist ministers who came in for three or four years. That's all it did uh, at that stage. I'm grateful to Spurgeon's because it gave me a love for systematically going through the Bible. 
Um, I, I kind of learned something about discipline study and about books and that. And I want to be very clear. One of the things I've learned over the years is that you should never despise your roots. And uh, so I moved away, as I'll say a bit later, for, obviously from the Baptist family. Uh, but I don't despise those roots because they put something into me which has been really helpful for a lifetime of ministry. Uh, but I have to say that during the four years there, I learned nothing about the church at all. I had no theology of the church when I came out four years later. I simply assumed that you did church the way that Baptists did it. Uh, and I had no understanding of the church at all. I actually felt the expression, the body of Christ, was a mystical term for the church. That's as, you know, that was how uninformed I was. Interestingly, though, when I was in Spurgeon's, I first touched something charismatic because this was just at the beginning, uh, it was about 1970, just at the beginning of the real stirrings of the early charismatic movement in this country, which of course was to have reverberations in all sorts of ways. And there was a group that kind of began to cohere together in the college that really began to uh, ex- uh, sort of meet to pray and experience God and some of them you know, said that they had experienced God in a new way it became a bit of a threat in the college really and kind of all the staff and the students were gathered together at one point to discuss it and to talk about it and it certainly wasn't kind of uh, a kosher at that time and to be honest I think the group was a little immature I have to say that in terms of some of the things that were being said inevitably but nevertheless, I, I realised I was beginning to touch something which interested me. I attended this group a couple of times. And also, there was a couple of other influences that were happening. Something was happening in a weird place called Chard in Somerset. Now, if you know anything about charismatic history, that will ring bells to some of you. People were dancing in meetings down in Chard in Somerset. And then there was this guy called David Watson, who I think at that point was a curate actually in Gillingham. Uh, and I was hearing him, and apparently he was having sort of things happen, and it was kind of interesting. But also, it was right at the end of Martin Lloyd-Jones' ministry at Westminster Chapel, and he was preaching through the first chapter of John's Gospel, and he was preaching about baptism in the Holy Spirit. And that kind of really caught me, because I trusted him, and I began to really kind of accept what he was saying about uh, baptism in the Spirit. Now, just put that on pause for a moment. Uh, after four years, uh, we kind of had a more or less automatic entrance into a Baptist church because uh, there were always Baptist churches that were looking for pastors and some of them were willing to take on a college out of student, uh, sorry, a student, uh, someone being a student in a, a Baptist college. And so it wasn't too difficult usually for students to get straight into a Baptist church. So Sue and I went very, very young, very, very green to Bitten Park Baptist Church in Southampton. Okay. We were, we were very young. We were 24 and 25. And Southampton to me, as a Londoner through and through, felt like a foreign country. Um, most people there were local, local people. A lot of the men had worked in the docks or were working in the docks. There were lots of Hampshire accents about, which now I think is great. And then I just thought, don't they speak funny? Um, I was just such a Londoner, an ignorant Londoner. You know, when I was thinking about this, um, I feel that we should now be always consciously grateful for the way that things are done amongst us. 
Um, if you're young and you're new, you think, well, this is normal because it's become normal. But this whole process of recognizing gifting, encouraging gifting, encouraging people into responsibilities that measure to their gifting, giving them appropriate training, having older, wiser men and women to mentor you, counsel you, stand by your side. It is wonderful. It, it is just wonderful. John and I were like a couple of kids thrown out of a lifeboat without a life belt in a way in, into the sea. John was supposed to have a senior friend, that was the Baptist term, an older, wiser pastor within somewhere within the region to come and maybe help him a bit. That never happened. It just didn't happen. And so there we were, terrifyingly ignorant. As John said, he knew nothing about the church. We, were, we loved God and we wanted to serve the people and we were good-hearted. And I think God was faithful to that. I know he was, but when I think about it now, it, it, it was crazy. And, the, and therefore the wastage from that system was truly terrible. There were 18 men on John's year at Spurgeon's and within five years, I think this is right, isn't it? Within five years of going into ministry, 12 of those men had come out of the ministry. I mean, that's terrible wastage. And the, and the sacrifices that had been involved previously for them and for fiancés and, and wives and some of them with families in going through Spurgeon's and then it just ended in heartache, really. And um, somehow, by God's grace, we survived and... Uh, we learnt a lot. John, as he said, didn't know anything about the church as the body of Christ. He could always preach. He could preach from when he was about 20. At least I thought he was great. Um, <laughs> and uh, I knew about helping to lead a youth group because that's what I'd been doing. I'd never actually related to grown-ups in our church back in North Finchley. I'd always rather been in the youth group or helped lead it. Um, and John was a proper reverend, so that may have helped because he was actually ordained at our home church. Uh, and then there was an induction service at our church in Southampton, which sounds like going into labor, which is about right, I suppose. <laughs> he bought a dog collar, um, which he looked absolutely awful in. <laughs> and uh, I think he was trying to put it on for a funeral. And he got in such a tizzy about it. He went, well, I'm like this, and then it was never worn again, thank goodness. Uh, so it was, it was John with a measure of gifting and his little handbook of... Um, it was a little blue book, wasn't it? A Baptist blue book. And it had in it how to run a funeral, how to marry somebody, that kind of stuff. That was about it, really. John, the book, John, <laughs> John, the book, me and God. That was, that was it, really. So John knew what his responsibilities were. They were to preach two decent but not too long sermons on a Sunday, different morning and evening, and to bring some relevant and helpful teaching midweek on a Wednesday. He was to visit the sick and elderly, and he was to keep the deacons happy. And that was... Um, that's about it, really. Yeah. With, yes. Uh, I don't. I don't know what my responsibility is. Be pleasant and smile and um, be president of the sisterhood, which was the very old ladies' meeting. And there I was, 24, and I was president of the sisterhood. So um, that 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 was interesting, and I learned a lot. And they were lovely. They were lovely. Uh, they knitted. They would. They would. We would have a talk, a speaker, and then they, and they'd knit. So. Um, while the speaker was speaking. So um, I kept them awake. That's all good stuff. Um, and we, was, and we, were, we were surviving quite nicely. The church did begin to grow. It was steady growth. And um, we began to get a few students come from uh, Southampton University. And it was, it was looking good. 
And then about two years in, our little church was hit by the charismatic movement, which John had already mentioned that he'd had personal contact with. And there was a very lively Pentecostal church in town, in Southampton, and it began to draw people to it who were hungry for God. They were good people. And some of our best people started going to meetings there. And uh, they, they liked what they experienced, and they wanted our Baptist church to become a Pentecostal church overnight. And it was painful. I mean, those of you who've, you know, come somewhere towards our kind of generation, you'll remember the pain of it all, the deep divisions, the tension in the church, the suspicions. And we didn't know how to handle it. In the middle of it all, John was sovereignly baptized in the Holy Spirit on his own in his study. And somehow he managed to hold the church together, um, though some people, some of our best people, left. Um, I had a very, very lively small toddler, the kind, I won't name him, but he was the kind who used to poke his fingers in the sockets and climb up ladders on up house walls and that kind of stuff. Um, and I was expecting another baby. So I was emotionally vulnerable and I hated the divisions and the strife and I felt very bruised about the whole thing. And we plodded on, feeling thoroughly bashed up. And John decided that the time had come to throw in the towel and become a teacher. And he even found a job. But then, I think it may be just worth me saying something about being baptised in the Spirit. I was theologically convinced by Martin Lloyd-Jones' teaching, um, and then the charismatic movement was kind of getting underway. It was then creating a problem in our church. But what really kind of brought me to a point of crisis was that I, I took a, a group of young people and young couples to. Uh, Basingstoke Baptist Church, which was Barney Coombs Church, was still Basingstoke Baptist then, and uh, there was, uh, uh, we went because there was a group from America called, the New America called the New Creation Singers who were performing. So we went into this meeting, and I, I'd never been into anything like it because it was kind of charismatic and people with their arms in the air, obviously, and you know, it was quite different to anything I experienced in our Baptist church. But one of the couples that I took with us, the, the wife, uh, she had joined our church, was undoubtedly a Christian, but was terrified of anything public, so she'd never actually been baptised in water. Uh, and uh, here we were in, in Basingstoke Baptist Church, and I was in one pew, and Jane, the name is, was behind me. And in the middle of the worship, worship she suddenly went bang, straight out on a pew behind me. And I thought, great, what's happened to her? So I knew but Barney Coombs just very slightly. And I got him outside the building and I said, she's one of my members. You know, what's happened to her? And he said, well, she's either been baptised in the spirit or she's demon-possessed. You'll find out when she comes round. So that was, uh, that was really helpful. So uh, she seemed all right when she did come round, so it wasn't until the next day that I got a conversation with her and she said that she'd been standing there and she felt the power of God come on her with such force. She was just literally floored. She was just knocked out on the pew. And uh, she was sovereignly baptised in the Holy Spirit. A few weeks later, publicly gave her testimony and was baptised. And to this day because sometimes where do people go, is a member of the Southampton Community Church and we still have some contact with her and her husband. But that kind of gingered me up, really. 
Uh, and that's when I really began to seek God and was sovereignly baptised in the Spirit in, on my own in my, in my study. As soon as said, things got very tense though and we, we kind of, I was wondering whether to pull out altogether but then I got a call to another Baptist church in a place called Swalecliff which is at the eastern end of a small uh, Kentish town called Whitstable quite near Canterbury but on the coast and uh, it's called Swalecliff Free Church. It was a Baptist church uh, and in the end we were there for nine and a half years. The reason that uh, I really felt to respond to that church, and this is the early part, significant early part of our ministry really, is that I could sense that amongst the deacons they were kind of on the same pilgrimage that I was now on, being baptised in the Spirit, looking for something to happen in the church, looking for a new expression in the life of the church. Everything was kind of changing because of the charismatic movement. I not yet had any contact with Terry or kind of the restoration scene, um, but uh, uh, we kind of came together. It was a kind of meeting of minds. And so uh, when I arrived, what we started to do, particularly with, this, with some at least of the deacons, was to explore how to truly be the body of Christ. Now again, if any of you were kind of older or have read back, you, you might be aware that at that time, the real expression was the church's community. That was the big, big emphasis. Uh, so much so that actually some people literally went into Christian community and there were quite a number of Christian communities established, uh, some of which, to be honest, were a bit disastrous. Not all, but some were. Uh, we came within a hair's breadth of that, to be honest. Uh, we very nearly went into Christian uh, community and nearly brought a big house altogether. Uh, but uh, we didn't quite get there, but we became a very community-minded church, so people were kind of moving, literally, house to be near the church building. There was a fabulous sense of community. There was a lot of young couples, which kind of helped, because a lot of people much uh, the same age. Um, again, a name that might be known to some of you, that Fountain Trust was more influential on us at that time. Kind of was, that was Anglican renewal, charismatic renewal, headed up by David Harper, who had, Michael Harper, Michael Harper, who had been a curate of John Stott's at All Souls, and he kind of pulled away from that because of baptism in the Spirit. But also, it's amazing how God brings these links. Through someone in the church, we got a direct link with David Watson, who was now at St. Michael's in York, which was making big-time noise, uh, and one of the very famous uh, early charismatic Anglican churches. And, I mean, big things were happening at St. Michael's at York and in fact I and some of these deacons went up there and spent a week as it happened because we had the personal link uh, these deacons and myself stayed in Michael Wat uh, Dave Watson's house so that was quite an experience to be in that atmosphere and that church and to be with him personally uh, for a week so you can imagine that was very influential on us so when we came, came back uh, we started to push the church further on so a strong sense of community, we began to change the worship, things began to change more and more, it kind of became more open. We had a morning and evening meeting, it seemed safer at that time to keep the morning meeting fairly traditional, but to ex experiment with the evening meeting, some of us have been there, <laughs> and, that became, and it was beginning to get a bit of a name. Now, there were two rather extraordinary things uh, that happened then, because... We were in the middle of nowhere, the eastern end of a little Kentish seaside town, but we were only three miles from Home Bay Court, which was a big Christian conference centre, now closed down. The staff all started to come to us, and in the summer, the place ran as a Christian holiday centre. They hadn't, didn't have meetings on Sundays, 
So on Sundays, there was about 120 people or something, 150 people, who were free to go to any church. So a lot pitched up with us. Also, Kent University was... Were you one of those students? All right, Kent University, how about that? Kent University was between, halfway between us and Canterbury. And we became the student church. And because uh, there was nothing going on particularly in Canterbury at that time. So my church, which was then about 200 members, I mean, sometimes on Sunday evening we were into 400 plus people into overflow meetings because um, we were creating a bit of a stir. So it was, but, and this is the interesting thing, did it feel tense? Because we were transitioning, and I learnt that word even then. Uh, we, we were transitioning. <laughs> and uh, to be honest, we didn't really know what we were doing. <laughs> I mean, we had nobody to guide us. We just had these kind of vague, occasional contacts. I mean, it was tense. And I mean this in all seriousness. I used to go out on a Sunday evening to sort of start the meeting, and I, I used to wonder, am I going to die here tonight? I really felt like that. What will happen if this happens or that happens? You know, you're kind of terrified in those days. Supposing somebody speaks in a tongue and nobody interprets, you know, it'll be a nuclear fallout. You know, I mean, you didn't really did feel like that. You thought, oh, and the thing, so, so there was a big change taking place and we were getting a reputation and people were pitching up from all over, um, but it was very nerve-wracking. And then... Um, uh, the, the Bible weeks were kicking in, and in 19, you said 77 it was, love, didn't you? We went to the Dales, was it? Anybody remember the Dales in 77? There were 78, 78. Uh, Bob Mumford was the speaker from America. In Bible week history, there are three weeks of exceptional and extreme bad weather. Sue and I were on each of those three weeks, all right? <laughs> So it happened at 78 at the Dales. It just rained constantly, non-stop. We, it was just a miserable, miserable week of weather. It happened at the Downs one week, came known as the year of the Drowns. And then once at Stonely Bible Week, when um, Dave Devonish was trying to preach, there was a cloud that hovered over the Bible site and nowhere else, and people were just being flooded out. And we were all three weeks. Uh, we have our badge for that. So, but we went to the Dales in 78, and, uh, and this was a life-changing moment because intuitively we were pushing on, things were changing, but it was tense, and I knew there was something intuitively that I hadn't seen, hadn't got hold of. And one night, Bob Mumford preached for an hour and a half on, on uh, spiritual authority, and I came out of that meeting hall, and they had concrete paths, which we were grateful for, there was a solid meeting hall, and I stood there and I said to Sue, that's it. It's the issue of spiritual authority. And in that moment, I literally changed from being a Baptist to a Restorationist. I always date it to that moment. I completely changed. Um, and so that took us then into, into more tension because we went back to uh, our church and then I insisted on appointing elders without a vote, which of course you were meant to do in the Baptist church. So things became ever more tense. And then... I had, uh, again, a life-changing moment. And uh, uh, one of the things I would say is that I think throughout our ministries, we need to be just attentive to a moment that God may suddenly touch us that we need to respond to. Because I think in our lives, God suddenly gives an opportunity. And to take a scripture out of context, you've got to seize the opportunity. 
And so a guy called Ian Wilkie was leading a church in London, um, which was a, one of the first churches that Terry was associated with in London. And we had a male student nurse in our church, and he went up, and while he was studying in London, he attended Ian Wilkie's church, and used to come back and basically tell us that, okay, we'd moved on a bit, but you should see this church I go to, they've really got it, you see. Uh, And so Ian Wilkie was down on holiday in our area. He drove around, he saw our church building, and decided, in quotes, on a whim, to actually come to our church on the Sunday morning. He's sitting there, and as he sits there, he thinks, hey, this must be the church that Kevin comes from. And this was the student who was uh, up now with him. So at the end of the service, he comes up and speaks to me, and we had a good conversation. A few weeks later, I was due to have an elders meeting at 8 o'clock on the Saturday morning, which is what we did every week. We had about an hour and a half, I think, on the Saturday morning, because these were non-full-time guys. Uh, and so we used to meet on a Saturday morning at 8 o'clock. And uh, on Friday night, Ian Wilkie rings me up about 9 o'clock. And he says, Terry Virgo, who oversees our church, he holds leaders meetings in Sussex once a month. And uh, he's speaking tomorrow. I know it's late, but if you'd like to come tomorrow, you'd be very welcome. So I said, thanks very much, put the phone down, said to Sue, that's crazy, I can't do that. You know, it's nine o'clock now, we've got a meeting at eight o'clock, so I can't go. But I kind of stayed awake that night, and I felt I ought to go. So I, said, I had to, it meant leaving about seven in the morning, half past seven in the morning, so I said to Sue, I'm going to go. I said, you tell the elders to get on with it, just so I've gone down to this meeting in Sussex. So... I went down to Sussex, I think it was Hayward Heath, if I remember rightly, and for the first time I heard Terry speak, and I thought, boy, has he got something to say to the church? It got me immediately, and uh, I thought, I need to connect with this. So I, I went back, and I said to my elders, I said, we've got to go and hear this guy together. So for... A few months, I think it was, we kind of went and heard Terry speak at these monthly meetings. We were getting drawn in by Terry's vision, understanding what he was saying about the church. So we thought, what do we do? So we thought, we come from a Baptist church. We want to move it on. We can't ask Terry Virgo. If he comes to our church at the moment, he'd just blow it sky high. So then we had a bright idea. Some of you will remember the name of Henry Tyler. And Henry Tyler worked very closely with Terry in the early years. He's, he's died a number of years ago now. But uh, he, he had been a Baptist pastor himself. And not only had he been a Baptist pastor, but actually there were people in my church who had been in his churches. So we thought that would be the way through. We'll get Henry Tyler to come and we can say he's been a Baptist pastor uh, and we can say, hey, you know, some of you know Henry Tyler. Isn't that great? He's coming. So... We went as a little group up to Henry Tyler and we say to him, Henry, would you, would you please come and speak? We talked a little bit about our church and see what was happening and said, you know people in our church? He said, oh yes, I remember them. So he said, would you please come and preach? He said, I'd really love to, he said, but I'm just about to go into hospital for an ear operation, but I know Terry would like to speak at your church. Terry, these guys would like you to speak at their church. I could say at this point, that the rest is history. Um... But I always think to myself, if I had not responded to that phone call I got from Ian Wilkie, I wonder how my life would have turned out. (laughs) I just sensed in God at that moment I needed to do something. 
And, uh, and so, at that point, we, we kind of got to know Terry, but he did come, uh, I think, two or three times and speak. I, got, I developed a bit of a, a, a friendship uh, with him, but to be honest, the thing was getting tenser and tenser in the church. And uh, I thought, this church is going to split. If I'm going to take this church any further, it's going to split. And bear in mind, I said, it had become a very tight community. And a lot of people had moved near the church building. And really, I think the truth was that after, after nine, nine and a half years, the church was holding together around me because they trusted me. And I, 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 was, I just couldn't take the strain of it anymore. And we've got a, a, I got an invitation from Moreland's Bible College uh, near, near Bournemouth to, to go and teach New Testament and theology. And whatever one may think of this now, I felt that was, that was the right thing to do. I think, I think in the economy of God, it was the right thing to do. But I think also, for me, it seemed to be a bit of an escape. That I could, you know, I could get out of the pressure and move on to something new. So we responded to that particular call. And then, uh, just to say about the church, because it's rather interesting... After I left, they called somebody else, who I won't name, um, but he kind of was carrying the same sort of visions I had, but, of course, the church didn't know him. So when he came in, he tried to push it on, the church is blue. And so they had a caricature bad Baptist meeting with people literally getting up and shouting at one another. Uh, and so he said, I'm going to resign, and all the deacons and the elders went with him and came out. They start another church that then linked to New Frontiers, obviously. Um, after a number of years, uh, he kind of retired and moved on. Uh, a younger guy came in to lead. And to be honest, although he was a good guy, it kind of began to drift down a bit until a, a time came when he felt that he should move on. And really the church at that point was, was really getting a bit low. So Canterbury have got involved and they pulled everybody into Canterbury. It's now been planted back out as a multi-site and I gather doing very well. So we've got this quite a flourishing church there again as a multi-site to Canterbury under Tom Shaw's leadership. So that's how, how the church has continued. Meanwhile, we move to Moreland's Bible College. <laughs> I don't know about you other wives, maybe you're bolder and braver than me. I'm neither bold nor brave. I don't cope with change very well. I cope with it, but not very well. Um, and for me, going to Moorlands was really an agony. Um, being, at, being at our church was somewhat of an agony, watching the stress and the strain on John. But um, I loved those people with a passion. I used to say, I knew when they sneezed, it was that kind of church, very close. It was my family, really. And uh, so for me, going to Moorlands or being married to a man who was at Moorlands, um, teaching was, was hard and uh, I, I discovered then that you can do God's will I know perhaps I have unique in this you can do God's will, know it's God work, God's will and still find it jolly tough and be miserable Is that, you know I think up to <laughs> thank you it was right, it was absolutely right to be there in the economy of God it was right but um, I, I, I just struggled with it and um, I struggled with Morelands, I think, as, as Morelands um, 
But I had to go out to work very fast to help pay the bills, and it was all the usual stuff of adapting to a new place. But God is kind, and God is faithful. And uh, I made some good friends there, and just soon after we arrived, um, Mick Frisbee felt it was right to, to bring uh, the church that we had joined, Christ Church Baptist Church, out into New Frontiers. So hey-ho, here we go again. There were tumultuous times, and off we went with uh, Mick and Denise and most of the church, and we formed... Um, the New Frontiers Church in Christchurch, which is now going great guns with, under Duncan Lee. Fabulous. Uh, so I think God's, in a way, said, hmm, you thought you'd get away with it. You'd get away from the stress and the strain of nailing your colors to the mast. Well, you're going to do it anyway. So off we went and, with Mick and, and uh, were part of the formation of the New Frontiers Church in Christchurch. And God taught me things about, um, I, again, the sacrificial willingness of wives particularly at Moorlands who'd sold out their they'd sold houses with their husbands they were working to support their husbands I mean there were some single guys and girls there as well but tough for those women and believing God for their futures and they I didn't feel they were looked after to be honest so with another um, member of staff's wife we formed a group for the women a support group for the women and I enjoyed being part of that because I really felt those women needed to be supported and encouraged um, and for John it was just as he said just so great to get into the whole training and teaching thing God knew what he was doing and uh, uh, I've learned to trust him in that that sometimes things are very hard and not necessarily enjoyable but but in them God knows what he's doing it was difficult for me because I've spoken to some of you about this before you've heard this but it was the only time in my life when I heard the audible voice of God and I said to God a few weeks into our life in Christ church feeling like an exile oh God how long have we got to be here and this audible voice came to me will you all be here three years it was I heard the voice and uh, I went indoors I was in the garden always my solace when I'm miserable and I went into the house and I said to John God's told just told me we're going to be here three years and he did the husbandly thing went, well, we'll see about that you know whether that works out uh, so uh, <laughs> so we, we we moved to Christchurch in August 83 and we moved out in August 86 so God was about God was about right <laughs> but in some ways it was a comfort because I knew this was just a temporary phase in, in other ways it's difficult to live in a place, isn't it, when you've got your mental bags half-packed. Um, I never wanted to know after that how long we'd be in a place. I just wanted to be and focus on that place because I never put down deep roots there because I knew it was a waste of time because God had told me I was going to move on within three years. So in some ways it was helpful. In other ways it made a difference to how I related to people and to the work there. Sorry. Every time Sue tells that story, I seem to come off in a worse light. <laughs> After the famous three years, uh, Terry, who had kept the links and friendship with me, said, I'd like you to come and join the team down at uh, Brighton, at Church of Christ the King. So, in a way, that then seemed to be the perfect route. I, I was kind of, uh, I had some experience in ministry, I had three years in teaching and training College. I was utterly convinced now of restoration theology. I had a friendship with Terry. And, I mean, it was just wonderful that God uh, opened that up. And we, we moved down to Brighton. 
So in the early years of Brighton, we actually went straight into a situation that has certain parallels of what's happening today. Now, as we, ar- we arrived uh, at Brighton, some of the biggest churches were actually going multi-congregational. They didn't go multi-site, they went multi-congregational. And the way that we ran it, uh, and this is how it ran in Brighton, was that there were five congregations, each had a leader uh, and ministered um, uh, in their congregations though it was his church, but that once a month um, we'd all come together for a celebration meeting and Terry would typically preach at that and he was still uh, leading the church. So that's what I kind of went into and I actually oversaw the, church, the congregation at home straight away as I arrived, one amongst five. Um, I could say obviously so much now because this was the beginning of a 24 uh, year stay but uh, you might be interested to know some about our elders meetings in those very earliest days Uh, uh, Terry was leading the church and we had a number of full time elders including three of us who kind of had just come full time John Wilthew, Alan Preston and me John and I had come from outside so that was a new dynamic there were also four non-full time elders uh, in the church uh, and so obviously in order to have an elders meeting you know finding the time was quite difficult because of those four guys uh, obviously because they were at work but we used to have it once a month so the church was then six to seven hundred people Terry was leading we were in five congregations uh, we had full-time elders and non-full-time elders and once in a month on a Wednesday evening we would meet at 8 o'clock, Terry would chair it, and he would say, let's worship God. And so until 9 o'clock, we'd worship God. And then for the next hour, we had to deal with a church that had six to 700 members, five congregations, this mixture of elders. Um, it was chaos. It was t- I thought, this is ridiculous. You know, it was better in the Baptist church than this. <laughs> it was chaos. Um, so, in a very polite way, I said to Terry, I'm not sure this is working too well. Um, so he said, okay, you, you, lead, you lead the elders meeting. So, um, we didn't do so much worship, to be honest, but we did get through more business. Um, uh, <coughs> and then we hit our real major leadership crisis. Now, this was the only one that I had, we had in the 24 years that I was at at CCK, but the the full-time elders went away for a kind of one or two day retreat. We didn't take the non-full-timers with us, which was probably a bad mistake to be honest, but we went away for a two-day retreat I think it was. At this time I was now chairing the elders, so I was kind of setting the agenda, but of course Terry was very much still there, he was still leading the church, but because I was chairing it, I jumped in an issue and I said, uh, this, well, I think now at this stage we had been together I think about 15 months I, I think I've been there about 15 months and the church been in five congregations about that time something like that and so I jumped in and I, I asked him and said how, how do we fit its work in the five congregations because there were some obvious strains about it and the result of that discussion and Terry is very much part of this was actually we felt that the call of God on us was to build a big church in Brighton. And so we felt that what we would do would be to bring the whole church back together into one, that we'd look for a different building, uh, and we'd meet as one large church. We then went back and 
spoke to the non-full-time elders and, to be honest, the ceiling or the roof caved in. Um, and they felt that they hadn't been consulted. Uh, we, we had real difficulties. We had many meetings where we were all together and then we had other meetings where individually we saw the non-full-time elders and three of them were implacably opposed to what we were doing. They felt they'd been jumped into it and we had... We had a major, major crisis on our hands. So these three elders, after a few months, they all resigned and a little later they all left the church and the church was really rocked by it Um, because these guys had been very faithful guys and they were well known in the church, they were long-term members, they'd served brilliantly. I really mean that, all I'm saying I really mean. And yet suddenly they'd resigned and were out of the church. So the church was really rocked by it. Um, Interesting thing happened. About a year later, I was preaching, and I kind of made reference to this. And I said that I want to make it clear that you know, many of you, we had a real big crisis about a year ago. And I said, I don't think that we realise the nature of spiritual warfare that was involved in that. I said, the guys that left us, you know them, many of you, and they were brilliant guys and served this church brilliantly. And I think they were acting with total integrity in terms of representing their view. I said, I think you trust the present eldership, and we were trying to operate in real integrity. But I said, as much as we talked together, somehow all that happened was that it got worse and worse. In a way, the issue wasn't difficult to resolve. It wasn't a very complex issue, but everything just got worse and worse every time we talked about it. And I said, I think we failed to realise that the devil got on the back of that and drove it. And I said, I think in terms of spiritual warfare, the devil wants to bring down not only new church plants, but established churches. And what, what the devil does in established churches is he tries to promote irreconcilable division. There are issues that you should be able to resolve, but actually become irreconcilable. And I said, I think that's what happened to us. And I think that took quite a pressure off the church. But uh, an extraordinary thing happened. I didn't, it never even crossed my mind. But of course it was being recorded. And it was cassette tapes in those days. So later that day, these three ex-elders had any number of cassette tapes come through their letterboxes of this sermon. Never even crossed my mind. All three of them recognised it. And so that's exactly what happened. In fact, one of them said to me several times, I don't even know what happened during those days. I can't even explain it. I can't. I just don't know what happened. And actually, one of them, though reconciled us, decided not, reconciled to us, decided not to come back into CCK. But actually, the other two guys did come back in and picked up some degree of leadership later on. And so there was a, a good reconciliation. But over the years, I've been asked quite often to speak on spiritual warfare. And I... That's one thing I've learned about spiritual warfare. If you've got an established church, beware Satan's plans because he's got, he's got plans and schemes against established churches. He's got different plans for church plants. But one of his plans for established churches is that if he can create irreconcilable division, he will do that. And when it happens, if you stand back from it, you'd say, why can't we resolve this? but actually somehow the devil gets onto it and drives it. So that's one thing I learned about spiritual warfare. After we'd um, 
been there for two years. In fact, uh, we went down to Cape Town. Um, time's moving on, so let me just jump to... And I won't tell you how that happened, but it was another sovereign God moment. It was before Simon Pettit went down there. We went down there for four months, led what became Jubilee Church, to which Simon was to go. In a way, we opened up the way for Simon to go and lead that church. When, I, when we came back from four months in Cape Town, Terry then passed the leadership of the Brighton Church to me. And... Uh, for the next eight and a half, eight years uh, approximately, I, I led the church in Brighton. Uh, the, probably the biggest feature of those years, as people will remember them, is that we went into a massive building program uh, and the church kind of went into the uh, Clarendon Centre, which it is now in. Had a very um, interesting uh, moment with regard to that. We, it was a two floor. Uh, ground floor on a first floor building when we first went into it we, we paid for the building we got the ground floor fitted out properly we met temporarily on the first floor um, because we wanted to put another floor on which indeed we did um, so we just met temporarily on the first floor so it was a bit kind of uh, uh, give and take kind of thing it was a bit mucky up there to be honest while we were there but the day came when we felt that we should actually launch the, um, the building program for the top floor. Terry was away in Australia and we got the, the costing. We had been told it would cost us half a million pounds to put the top floor on when we initially started out. When the costing came in for it to actually happen, it had gone up to a million pounds. And we kind of thought, wow. You know, can we really... I mean, this is quite a long time ago now. We're going back, you know, towards 20 years or so. Can we, can we really ask the church to raise another million pounds? And uh, I was due to speak to the church the next Sunday and say, we're going to go for the top floor and uh, this is the money that we need. And suddenly I was going to have to say, it's not half a million, it's got to be a million. And we bogged down as elders and, and thought, what are we going to do? And then I felt God say to me, just dissolve the elders' meeting give everybody a couple of hours and say, just go away and seek God. So we went out from that room not knowing what we would do. And as I walked around on my own praying, I felt God said to me, next Sunday, don't preach the money, preach the vision. And I went back to the elders and said, I believe that's what God said. They said, absolutely. So next Sunday, I didn't preach the money, I preached the vision. We got the million pounds, we completed the building. Um, and at the same time, we learnt something about giving money. Uh, we raised three and a half million. Almost all that money came from within CCK uh, to, to finance that building. We completed the clearing off the debts on the last day of December 1999. So three and a half million back then was a lot of money. Um, we had a gift day three times a year, raised £100,000 every gift day, apart from monthly giving towards the building and God did a miracle in us really because every gift day seemed to be a miracle every time he got to a million to a hundred thousand pound it was quite extraordinary but how does it happen and when we paid off the building we said if we've been able to do it all these years why don't we continue doing it and so we continued three times a year to have a gift day that raised a hundred thousand pounds and we used to give that away we must have given away millions of pounds by now at those gift days in the Brighton church 
gradually it went up to 150,000, I think by the time that Sue and I left there four years ago. They've got to do some more building work now at Church of Christ the King. Had a, had a, had a gift fund, gift day the other day. They raised £330,000. I mean, the amazing thing was, throughout all that building program, nobody died of starvation, but we got some wonderful stories of God's provision. Wonderful stories. Um, and I think those, were, I think those became co- consolidation years, the years that I was leading, when we went into the building, we were consolidating the church. We had particular strengths. Terry, of course, was always there with his vision uh, and his prayer life. By the way, guys, whatever you think of Terry and his prayer life, all that you know about him from a distance is true and even more true close up. Um, this movement has been birthed a lot out, out of Terry's vision and prayer. There was always that strength. We had a fantastic team. And I think also the Stonely Bible Weeks were a particular strength to us as a, as a church at that time. Briefly, love, we're time is moving on. Mm. For those of us who've been part of CCK for any length of time, it's in our DNA, the same as any church you've been part of is in your DNA. Um, we won't ever forget it. Uh, we, because of the stage we're at, we'll probably never be in another church for 24 years. Um, it was a very exciting place to be. When I think about it uh, now, I I kind of wonder at it in some ways. It wasn't all perfect. Sue will tell you that. Alan will tell you that. All sorts of other people. But it was an exciting place to be. Um, We had some superstars. As uh, as John said, there were superstars. uh, Musical superstars. One sitting here now. And um, preachers who could preach pretty well. And uh, all sorts of people who were very good at what they did. But most of, the, most of us were just ordinary people, loving God, just like the people in, in your church. And as John said, with this amazing uh, grace of giving, quite extraordinary, um, this grace to give and, and to believe God for, for, for supply. Uh, we've been very privileged, John and me, and we do know that. We've, we've done loads of traveling We've been to lots of interesting places. We have friends all over the world, but that has pluses and minuses because um, some of the people that you love the best are thousands of miles away, but hey, that happens to all of us, doesn't it? And uh, some of them are friends and some of them are family. So um, it's, it's been a good run. <laughs> Let me say something about the later years at Church of Christ the King. Um, after I'd been leading for about eight years, we had a change of roles within in the church, and Pete Brooks was to take on the leadership. I got released to a wider itinerant role, and actually began to head up the training in New Frontiers, at least in terms of overseeing the bases for the teaching. Uh, and I actually pioneered what became our advanced training course, which has run so successfully uh, for many years. But that took us uh, to many churches around the nation, to many countries overseas, um, amongst the many countries, Dubai and South Africa were particularly uh, strong uh, connections, but because of time I won't go into uh, that at all. Um, the church under Peter's leadership um, kind of probably became more outward looking and we established two meetings, a morning and a repeat evening meeting, which began to run very successfully. Uh, in the latter years, we went to three meetings on a Sunday, and our church, of course, the church has gone multi-site, 
and there are five meetings across three centres now every Sunday, and that's drawing up to about 1,400 people now um, at a Church of Christ King Joel Virgo, of course, now leading. I cannot resist telling you one story that we had a conference for New Frontiers pastors to which John Piper came and spoke, actually in the Brighton building. And the day that John Piper arrived, the day before the conference, um, Terry was away and he asked Sue and me if I would host John and his wife Noel for the day, which we did. Very interesting experience to be with John Piper for the day. And we were talking theology in about 30 seconds and so it went on all day. Um, but uh, I had one rather um, <laughs> embarrassing moment. I thought I ought to sh- show John Piper... Uh, where he was going to actually teach in the conference. So I took him up to the top floor of our building in Brighton, and as we walked up there, there was a bookstall out with all his books. And he said, oh, he said, I, I didn't know you'd have all my books over here. Uh, so I said, well, we want to help you with your royalties, John. Uh, the next day in the conference, when he was preaching, he, just, he, he, he said, um, my books are available here, he said, I just want to make clear that I don't take a penny of royalties from these books. <laughs> it all goes to the wider Desiring God ministry. And they found me underneath a chair at the, at the end of the meeting. Uh, we had a fantastic team uh, in Brighton. Obviously, Terry was always with us, and obviously we had his prayer life and example and uh, the vision that Terry always brought. We had Nigel Ring, um, who, of course, uh, was brilliant on small detail and really held the church together in terms of administration uh, for, for many years and, uh, uh, and connected it with new, new frontiers. I mean administration in that sense, in terms of connecting us with new uh, frontiers. Brilliant eye for detail. Dave Fellingham, um, wonderful gifting and range of gifting that Dave Fellingham uh, has uh, he, worship leader, preacher, prophet I mean you name it D- uh, Dave can do it he was always pardon? you said you name it, he can do it administration? Uh, administration no. <laughs> I was just about to mention one thing uh, which was possibly his weakness which is that you know we all double book at times where there was the famous occasion when Dave Fellingham came into my study, sat down and said, John, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but I've triple booked. <laughs> and uh, and he, he, used to have, he used to have a diary to record things and then he'd lose the diary, so he'd get a bigger diary and uh, he'd lose that and get a bigger diary and then you'd find it six months later under a bunch of PA leads or something. So uh, Dave was always uh, great value for money. He was wonderfully entertaining. Um, Dave also was superb in a crisis, absolutely superb. So I always put it like this, if you, somebody was about to jump off Beachy Head uh, in Sussex, you'd want Dave Felly there, because uh, Dave was the one who could speak into it and would probably get the guy uh, to stop jumping. But I always used to say this, if he did jump, you needed Steve Warford to catch him. Because Steve Warford is the undiscovered secret of uh, New Frontiers. He was the pastoral anchor of, uh, of, um, sorry, of CCK. A lot of you may not have heard of Steve Warford. Um, but I tell you this, even though you may never have heard of Steve Warford, his reward in heaven will be very great. He's held that together, the church together pastorally. Absolutely superb. Not really known outside of CCK, I would say but a brilliant pastoral anchor. 
Uh, and uh, just an illustration, really, to me, of the fact that there are people who may not be widely known, but I think we're going to be very great in terms of God's rewards to them. And uh, Steve is one of those. We had Alan Preston, a uh, great team member. Alan Preston was a plant uh, in the official language of, of uh, groups of leaders. Alan Preston had ten new ideas every five minutes, uh, nine of which were absolutely off the wall, but one of which... One of which was brilliant, and uh, I mean, he, he brought a lot to the church in terms of uh, really being quite a prophetic guy, in, not, not a conventional prophet, but he could see things, and he brought some brilliant ideas uh, to the eldership. Pete Linden and Sue joined us. Pete, of course, really helped us uh, in our mercy ministry. He came as a senior social work, worker, had tremendous experience behind him, and brought huge pastoral depth to us. As, as well as really helping us on the, the, the side of reaching out to those needing mercy. John Morthy was with us in the earlier days, really archetypal pastor teacher, and really missed him uh, when he moved on. Six of that team stayed together for 20 years. I think that's probably a record in New Frontiers. And I'll tell you two reasons why it happened. One is that we genuinely respected complementary gifting. I ran through those guys simply to say they were very different. But, and we respected that. And we always gave each other space. The other thing was that none of us ever pushed our own agenda. Example, most of the elders would have wanted to have preached more than we did, including Terry. But none of us ever pushed that. And if you're going to get the benefits of team, you've got to bear those two things in mind. You've got to respect each other's giftings and you've got to be beware of pushing your own agenda. Because if you don't do either of those two things, at some point the team will fracture. Uh, and th those are two big lessons I learnt. One of the big blessings of CCK was the export trade. Uh, everywhere I go, there are leaders that came out of CCK, including a bunch here today. God blessed us with being able to seed out into so many other parts of the UK and indeed across the world. I'd better wrap up, love, because of time. Uh, there came a day when four years ago, almost exactly to this date, I preached my last sermon as uh, an elder at CCK after 23 years. Quite an emotional occasion. I had the three last Sundays to preach. Preached a short series on going out with joy. And uh, preached my last sermon. I have preached actually there since, but it was my last sermon as an elder. Um, we were asked by Steve von Rain down in Cape Town, South Africa, if we would join the team there for a year. Uh, so as soon as I finished at CCK, we actually went to South Africa. I know the Jubilee Church very well, had a long history uh, with it. And so we had a great year. It was actually our gap year. We didn't have it at the beginning when we graduated. We had it at the end, right? So we had a great gap year. And then Matthew, who leads the church in Paul, uh, our oldest son, said, why don't you move down our way but don't come to my church? Uh, which led to conversations with Guy Miller. And so we are now in Bournemouth. I'm an elder of the church in Citygate in Bournemouth, very active in the commission sphere, have now launched uh, 
advanced training again. I'm now overseeing that. I've just launched it uh, in, in the commission sphere. At this stage of life, and I suppose this has been true over probably about the last eight years, you have to know when to let things go. Can I say in this season of life, in this season of ministry, it's important to know when to let things go. Over the years, I've seen older pastors, leaders, hold on too long, not let other people through. And before God, and I may not be seeing it clearly myself, I've tried not to do that. And I phased out a number of things. I passed over the oversight of the training. I passed over the oversight of the theology forum, which I was, I was running. I've gradually extracted my thing myself from a, a number of areas which I was responsible for. Extraordinary thing is, it hasn't created a vacuum. God has still continued to give us things to do. Last week, um, Jeremy was there as well. Uh, we were at the New Frontiers Leaders Conference, and Rick, Rich Nathan, who leads the largest, largest, largest vineyard in the States, uh, was speaking, and uh, he was saying something about persevering and finishing well. And as he was speaking, one of the things that he said, kind of stuck with me and I wrote it down, and I wrote down in my notebook, don't stop ten yards short of the finish. I've taught a lot, and some of you even mentioned it to me today, about persevering. And so many fall short, and they lose their ministries, and they get into immorality. There's been so much sad stuff. And I have been so committed to want to finish well. But even at this stage, I'm saying to myself, Don't fall short 10 yards of the finish. And we've all got things to do for God until the day he comes or calls. Those are our seasons of ministry. There are seven things I teach about this, whether I can rattle off the whole seven straight off. But I've noticed this by observation. I'm not, and I've noticed it by observation in New Frontiers churches. I'm not saying that all seven apply to every church. But what I've noticed is that with church plants, there can be trouble about moving. People try to move and they can't move to get there. All right, okay. um, another thing I've noticed is that illness seems to occur in church plants. Maybe it doesn't occur more than in established churches, but if you've only got 12 or 15 people, if somebody gets very ill, it kind of pulls the whole group down. So that's something else I've noticed. Another thing is, free from scandals that we have largely been in New Frontiers, where there has been sexual immorality, it's almost always occurred with new church plants, and I mean amongst leaders. Um, So that's... that's, uh, uh, a third thing. Uh, I think a fourth thing is that you can, you can have people who join you because they haven't got into leadership in the church that they've come from and feel this is a good quick way through to leadership so they begin to pressurise and they want to be leaders and that can create problems. Uh, a fifth thing is that you can be too quick to appoint elders because you want to do the biblical thing and get, get elders through. A sixth thing is a battle for first fruits. How do you get your first convert? Well, you know, say how, but you need your first convert, you need your first youth group, you need your first baptism, and that's a fight, that's a battle. You've got to battle for that. That's six of the seven, I'm sorry. No, it wasn't money. No. Right, yes. 
Now, it's a good question, and I think there must be some subtlety in, in, in response to that. I'm not saying we were all strong, we all had strong opinions. I mean, one of the things about the six guys that stayed together for 20 years, every one of them could have led his own church. But we actually felt we wanted to stay together for the benefit of the team. So we all had strong opinions, and we did have ideas. But what I mean is that you can be in a leadership team where you begin to put other people under pressure that unless you do this, you know, you're not doing God's will, or I'm not going to continue on this eldership, or you, you begin in some way to threaten. And I would say that never, ever happened. After that original crisis that I described, in, so in the 20 years or more than that, after that period, we never had a bad elders meeting before God. We never had a bad elders meeting. That's not to say we didn't have times when we disagreed with each other. We had big issues, challenging issues. We had various types of crises that you get in church life. But I can honestly say, I never came out of an elders meeting thinking, gosh, this team's falling apart, it's bad. You know, it was never like that. So, opinions were given, representations were made, but nobody tried to dominate with their opinion. Okay? We always submitted to one another. So, it's that kind of spirit that I mean. Yeah. So, so in terms of teams, obviously there's an argument that one person sometimes has the final say. Yes. Do you believe in sort of teams that are all uniform, or should one person have the final say? Right, the three ways in which elderships make decisions. One is by consensus, and that's how you usually make it. All right, so however many elders you've got, you talk together, you pray together, uh, and you work things through, and mostly you say, together, this seems the right way to go ahead. That's mostly how you do it. The second thing is that you do it by prophetic revelation. Actually, you, you're stuck, but in some way you get prophetic revelation. I actually am a great believer, though not a good ex, exponent of actually doing that, of occasionally bringing a prophet into an elders meeting and saying, we're stuck on this issue. Can you seek God? Would you have a word from God for us? Because you can get prophetic revelation. One of the times that we came somewhat to it was the one I described, where I felt God said to me, don't preach preach money, preach a vision. All right, that was a moment of prophetic revelation for us. The third way, and this is why you need, uh, uh, need a lead leader of the team, amongst other reasons, but actually if you haven't got consensus and you haven't got prophetic revelation, sometimes people claim prophetic revelation, but they haven't really got it. But if you, if you've, if you, if you haven't got consensus and you haven't got prophetic revelation, then the only other way you can make decision is actually by authority and submission. And that's a principle we believe in leadership and must work with the elders as well. So, otherwise you get stuck. Otherwise you just you can't move on. In the end, somebody, in, on occasions, has to make the decision. It's like that in husband and wife relationships. It's all consistent through the scripture. So, a rather amusing occasion, again, to do with our, our move to the new building... We, I was leading the church, we were totally bogged down on the issue of a new name. We wanted to change the name um, from Clarendon Church. We continued the name to the building, but we wanted to change the name of the church. And we couldn't get anywhere with it. Um, so people, everybody had different ideas on the eldership team, what the name should be. Um, some people claimed prophetic revelation for that, but they clearly didn't have it. All right. and so, uh, I even got to a point of saying, write down your favourite names, and let's see if we've got any consensus that way, and got nowhere. So, eventually I went to Terry and said, Terry, we've got to settle this by authority and submission. I said, either you've got to choose the name, or I have. And Terry said, 
we will be called Church of Christ the King. And that was the answer. <laughs> Anybody got a question for Sue? So, any lady would like to ask anything? <laughs> Interesting. Going to Moorlands because I'd become a pastor's wife to my fingertips and suddenly I wasn't. So John was doing his job at Moorlands. I was out to work trying because we needed me to be at work. Was it attractive? Yes. No. Because I wasn't bearing the brunt of it, John was, because he always protected me. But God knew. So it's fine. I, you know, it was difficult, but it was fine. I survived, and I, and I learned. And uh, it was necessary. I needed to get something out of my system in order to get into the new thing. So it's, it's okay. To, and I went, it's funny, uh, um, this is relevant, and I will be quick. Last week we had a con- what we call a conurbation prayer meeting, Christchurch Bournemouth pool. We meet together once a term to pray. And we used Christchurch Baptist building, which I haven't been into for nearly 30 years. And it was where I was very miserable because I wanted to be back with my flock in Kent. But it was in that little building that God spoke to me in two of the most precious ways that I've ever been spoken to in my life. And they were words that I lived with then and I live with now. And I thought, well, thank you, Lord. It was a rotten old time and I found it really difficult, but you spoke to me. And, and I grew in it. I needed to be shaken out of a rut and dumped in another one. So, and then in another one. <laughs> it was fine. <laughs> There's one more question. Yes, take this last one. From whom? My husband supported me. <laughs> We were, in a, we were in this very community church when the children were small and we were very, very careful that our kids weren't either special or that they were just kids in the church. So we all kind of knocked around together really. Um, and I didn't expect anything, any particular support any more than anybody else. We kind of all helped each other. Uh, sorry. <laughs> very... I think there were different seasons. I think, I think what Sue probably would underline is that when we went to the second church, which I said there was a very strong community, I think the community was so strong that there was a lot of mutual support in that, wasn't there? Because there was a lot of young families and young children. Yeah. There? I feel very sorry for um, leaders and, and their wives if they feel their children are very exposed in ministry and, um, you know, we're the pastor's kids that... Um, maybe I kidded myself maybe I felt I hid my children in the great seething mass more than I actually did I don't know Um, but God is faithful and God is good and they survived so (laughs) well John Sue thank you so much let's express our thanks again to John and Sue thank you ever so much really appreciate it thank you